If anyone needs one of the uh, sheets for taking notes for the afternoon session, then uh, feel free to raise your hand and we'll get you one of those. Last week we saw that our righteous God who sees all strikes the treacherous and proud from Isaiah 21 through 24. And uh, today we're going to look at Isaiah 25 through 27. And these, this series of songs and then the statements in chapter 27, I think, show us together that God delivers his repentant people. In what way does God deliver? I think Isaiah 25 calls God's people first to praise God for his salvation for, from enemies and also from death. And I would take this from verse 1 where it says, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. And even verse 9, where it says, It will be said in that day, This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So this first chapter is a song of praise to God for his deliverance from primarily two things, from their enemies and from death itself. We see, first of all, that God saves from enemies in verses 1 through 5, and then also verses 10 through 12. God is unfolding his perfect plan in faithfulness. And so, uh, this is the first reason for which he's praised. You've worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Uh, There's a variety of parallel passages to this. There's the idea of what we read in Ephesians 1, when it says, uh, before the foundations of the earth, God chose in love that he would save people, right? That idea. There's all of the things that, you know, the passage that's often quoted out of context, but in Jeremiah where it says, I know the plans for you for good and not for evil. And that was God's plans directed toward his people Israel. Despite their sinfulness, despite their going astray, despite their constant idolatry, God's long-term plan was to save them from all of that, use exile and difficulty to turn them from their idolatry, and to bring them back to following him faithfully as his people. This verse 1 is the same kind of idea. Before the world was ever even formed, God knew what he was going to do in this circumstance and in this place, and he has carried out that plan in perfect faithfulness. What does it look like for God to deliver his people from their enemies? Well, in verses 2 and 3, there's this idea that there's this strong city that God throws down, and that he then forces those enemies who have been rejecting him in pride to instead worship him. So we see this in verses 2 and 3, where he makes the city into a heap and the fortified city into a ruin. Now it's left purposefully vague, because as we've seen throughout the book of Isaiah, this is true of a number of different nations. God's going to do this toward Moab and toward Edom and toward Egypt and toward Assyria and toward all of these nations who surround his people Israel and who threaten them at various points along the way to the extent that they in pride continue to exalt themselves against God, God is going to destroy their power, make them as though they were never a nation. In fact, in some of the descriptions of Babylon, such a place of desolation that people don't even rebuild the city and it's a place for wild animals to scavenge and thorns and briars and dust and emptiness and all those sorts of ideas, right? Because as we look at the trajectory of history, a nation will rise It will become proud, God will cast that nation down. A nation will become proud after it has risen, God casts that nation down. And the result of that is that, as verse 2 says, it is a palace of strangers, no more a city, it will never be rebuilt. 
what is the reason that God does this? Why does God cast down the pride of nations? Because, verse 3, a strong people will glorify you, and cities of ruthless nations will revere you. Also in verse 5, the song of the ruthless is, is silent. So these proud, mighty, warlike nations who think that they don't need God, when one of those is cast down, any of the rest of them that are paying attention are going to look around and see that God is powerful, God is strong, and the result should be that they would fear him and praise him, right? We see this also in verses 10 through 12. There's this idea that Moab specifically, as an example of one of these nations, God is going to rest his hand on this mountain, probably has in view the idea of Jerusalem, as in his presence is with his people, and in so doing, he's going to defeat this enemy, and it's going to be as though, I don't know if you've ever been to a barn, but how valuable is the straw that gets trampled next to the manure pile? Not very, right? Is it, is it exalted? Is it majestic? Is it lovely? Is it something desirable? No. It's garbage. It's waste. It's destruction, right? It's not something that you say, wow, look at this amazing thing. It is God's power crushing his enemies down to a place of worthlessness and destruction because of their pride. And in response to that, it's and he will spread out his hands. You know, they're going to fight against it. They're going to see if they can prevail, right? And God's going to say, absolutely not. You will not prevail against my purpose and against my judgment. We see this over and over again throughout history. Nations think that they are the ones in charge and God casts them down. Hitler thought he was going to have an empire for a thousand years and it was what, six? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon says, I'm going to rule and I am as a god. And God says, no, you're going to walk around like a cow and eat grass for seven years. That taught him humility, right? What was his response at the end of it? I know that there's one God and I'm not him and he's in charge and you should worship him, not me. Many other examples abound, but the same idea. Nations exalt themselves in pride. God carries out his purpose, casts them down in judgment. They fight against it, but God's plan and his purpose prevails. Verse 12, this is a fascinating verse. It says, The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will cast down. He will bring down. It's a little bit of irony there, right? Unassailable means you can't break it. You can't defeat it. And God comes along and pushes it over like a sandcastle on the beach. Lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. So the first reason that they're supposed to praise God is because he saves from enemies. He unfolds this perfect internal plan and faithfulness. He throws down the strong cities of his enemies and forces them to fear him. But in the midst of that, verses 4 and 5, he defends the helpless and the needy. Look at verse 4. You've been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress. So there are people in these who are sort of caught in the middle of these, these wars and battles and oppression and all these sorts of things. And God sees their need and God can care for them even as he is striking down the proud and the mighty, God can also deliver the helpless and the needy. And in fact, those two things often go hand in hand. As God casts down the proud, God helps those who are helpless and who are needy. And there's several illustrations that are given here. What is God like for those people who turn to him in their time of need? He is a refuge from the storm. Um, when I went to Philadelphia, uh, to visit um, my brother-in-law and his wife. We went as a family. We uh, were in Liberty Hall, and there was this torrential downpour. 
And our concern was the tour was going to be finished and we were going to get kicked out before the rain stopped, right? So in that moment, for us, that building was a refuge from the storm, right? And thankfully for us, 30 seconds before we got kicked out of the building, the rain stopped, for which we were very thankful. Now, if it hadn't worked out that way, it would have been fine, but the illustration wouldn't have worked for this, right? So the point is, God is a refuge for the needy in a time of storm. You get caught in a rainstorm, what do you do? You look for shelter. God is that shelter for the needy, for the helpless. There's also the illustration here of being a shade from the heat. Some people love the sun, don't get scorched, do amazing in it. I'm not one of those people. Uh, Better than maybe 10 years ago, but there was a period of time where before I was doing so much stuff outside with garden, all those sorts of things, that if I went outside, I was just going to be bright red and burnt, right? So for people like that, some of you can't relate to that, and that's fine, but for people like me, You need some sort of refuge from the heat, at least at some point, right? Or else you've got to ease into it over a long period of time. God is the refuge from the heat for the needy. When they have no shelter from the storm or from the heat, God is that shelter and refuge for them. And then he says in verse 5, Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of the aliens. And like heat uh, by the shadow of the, uh, actually I skipped one, I'm sorry, the, the one at the end of verse 4. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. So if God is that shelter, when rain hits against a wall, how effective is it at knocking it down? I mean, unless we're talking a tsunami or some really torrential rain like a hurricane, not very strong, right? You don't sit in your house and hear the rain and say, oh no, the house is going to fall down. Right? And so, in that same way, when God is a shelter for the needy, God is their protection. They can trust in Him. They don't have to fear the storm. And then in verse 5, this idea of like heat and drought, heat by the shadow of a cloud, this idea of breath, vapor, it's there and then it disappears, right? God subdues the uproar of the aliens and silences the song of the ruthless. Now, the word aliens here is not people from space, right? strange creatures. The idea is people who are the nations that surround the people of Israel, who are the enemies of God's people. God is able to deliver them from these enemies and silence the victory song of the ruthless who think that they have prevailed. But far more importantly, what we see in verses 6 through 9 is this idea that God saves from death. The first idea is that God prepares this lavish banquet for all peoples. And I think that this is an anticipation of what we see in Revelation, where it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and some of all of these images about this idea of feasting and rejoicing and, and being in God's presence. Okay, um, And the things that are described here are things that would associated with banquets that were uh, lavish and... Uh, abundant, and all of those sorts of words. So, aged wine, not what they had from the year before, but something that had been developed for a while. Choice pieces of meat with marrow, so it wasn't like the remnants of the meat that was dry without any fat in it, but, but like good pieces of meat, and all those sorts of things. But then in verse 7, a very surprising thing happens. So, for the people, aged wine, choice pieces of meat, Right? Verse 7, what does God eat? God eats up death. 
It says in verse 7, he'll swallow up the covering over all peoples, the veil over all nations. Verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time. There's a lot of speculation on why it's this description of covering and veil and what exactly that means. We sometimes use those words uh, to describe death. Uh, And I think part of it is because death obscures and death carries a lot of the idea of the unknown with it. So when it's described as a covering or a veil, it's this barrier that we can't see past, right? If someone dies, even for someone who is a believer, who the New Testament makes it clear would be with God because they've trusted in God and we'll see them again someday, all those sorts of things, there's still this barrier that we can't pass through and talk to them and see them and interact with them. So in verse 7, in contrast to the people who have this abundant feast, God takes for himself death, swallows it up, and destroys it. And so then in verse 8, in connection with this, not just, and then it comes back, but for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. And so I think we see a a glimpse of this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.54, and let me just read that for you. Um, Paul is talking about the subject of the resurrection. And the more that I've read this, I think that he probably had this passage in mind. But when he talks about this idea in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Who does that? God. What is the nature of the victory? Death is defeated never to plague God's people again. When does that happen? In the end times. How do we know that it's going to happen? Because Christ defeated death on the cross and sort of secured the reality that God is going to ultimately and finally defeat death someday. Uh, And that's what Paul's talking about, the, the present realities of it. But I think Isaiah 25 is talking about that future reality when God abolishes death. No more death, no more tears, no more suffering for God's people in the way that there is now. And we see this also, I think, in Revelation, uh, I think, 21, this idea of the, uh, the no more tears. Some people have taken this, I think, as no one will ever have any sorrow. But listen carefully to what it says in uh, Revelation 21.4. It says, God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so I think people have the idea that when you get to heaven, like, you'll never cry again. But notice what it says at first. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. And so at least initially, it seems like in the context of heaven, there is a sorrow that God comforts. And I think that we would expect that in light of things like 2 Corinthians 1, where it says the God of all comfort has comforted us in our affliction so that we can then comfort others. And uh, in connection with that, uh, we see here this idea of death being defeated and tears being wiped away from faces. And so Revelation looks toward that future time. 1 Corinthians 15 talks somewhat about now, but also about the future. And Isaiah 25 describes what God is going to eventually do. And what is the response of the people to this? This idea that waiting on God brings salvation. 
Behold, this is our God for whom we've waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That day that's described there seems a long way off, right? Because right now, where are we? Death, tears, difficulty, sorrow, all of these things are a part of the reality of our lives. And so a, a, a world, a reality, a future in which those things are no longer part of our life is hard for us to think of. And so to wait for it is really hard because, for one, we're not good at waiting in our society. We, we have Amazon Prime and we have microwaves and we have all of these things that enable us to have things right now. I decide I want pizza, I can stick it in the microwave, I can have it three minutes later. I don't have to make it from scratch and wait an hour to bake it on an oven outside, right? It's, we've, we are in a society that has things immediately and instantaneously, and we think that that's the way everything should be, and yet this is something for which we must wait. But waiting is a good thing. Psalm 40 has kind of a parallel idea. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. I think the reason that that passage resonates with many of us is because we've been in those moments when we feel overwhelmed with life, like we're sinking into quicksand or in drowning in water, and we want deliverance, and it doesn't come in the moment that we think it's going to, but when God does deliver us, there is an opportunity for Him to be glorified and us to praise Him in a way that would not have happened had everything just been going exactly the way that we wanted it to go. And I think the same kind of idea here. Are we having to wait and believe and hope that God will defeat death? Absolutely. But that waiting produces in us a character that draws us closer to being like God. We should praise God for his salvation from enemies and from the greatest enemy, which is death, but this will likely only happen when we confess God and trust. He guides our way and gives us life. And that's what we see in chapter 26, that we can confess God and trust as he guides our way and gives us life. I see this in verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. And then verse 13. Through you alone we confess your name. And so I think that we are to confess God and trust, and we see this in the first six verses. First of all, we have this idea that God has given a strong city. Verse 1 of chapter 26. In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. So God has established them as a strong city, verse 1, and this is an opportunity for them to rejoice, to confess God as their trust, as their hope. For whom is this strong city available? Verse 2, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. So who is this city for? It is for the people who are following after God, God who's righteous, following him in righteousness. Now, we A lot of people, if they're going to pick one verse out of Isaiah, it's either the one from Isaiah 40 about mounting up with wings as eagles, or it's Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mine you'll keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. What we tend to do with verses like that is we rip them out of their context, we throw them on a t-shirt or a plaque that hangs on the wall, and we're like, oh, this is so inspirational. But look at this verse in its context. 
First of all, it's directed towards God's people, Israel, in the land of Judah. They're the ones for whom this verse is originally intended. It's said in the context of God has established them with a strong city. These people who have been wandering and in exile and all these sorts of things are going to return, and God establishes a city that is secure because God is with them because they're finally following him. I'll explain why I say that as we get later in the chapter here. In that context, there is a welcoming of all those who would pursue God in faithfulness and righteousness, and then comes this promise, this assurance, that the steadfast of mind you'll keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Not just sort of this free-floating, well, if I kind of feel like I'm trusting in God, then there's sort of this wave of peace is going to wash over me, and I'll just feel really good about life. But in the context of having abandoned God, been exiled, been judged, been restored, forgiven, given security once and more, in a relationship with God that is not full of wavering and doubt, then you have a verse, the steadfast of mind you'll keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. There's parallels with what we see in the book of James where it says that let the one who desires wisdom seek it from God, but let him ask confidently, not with wavering, because the one who wavers is like the, wind of the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, all those sorts of ideas, Right? And we tend to be that way when we come before God with things. But then we expect a verse like this to apply to our circumstances. There is supposed to be a settled security and assurance in our relationship with God before we really experience the sort of thing that verse 3 is talking about. Now, this comes in developing, unfolding stages, right? Because the first time you say, I'm going to start trusting in you, God, it's not as though everything just works out perfectly from that point, right? So I'm a sinner. I say I've been trusting myself. I've been trusting in these idols, whatever they might be. For people long ago, it was pagan spirits and sticks and stones and all those sorts of things and what they thought these gods could give them. Fertility, lots of kids, lots of crops, security from their enemies, all those sorts of things, right? That's the way that they worshiped. We tend to worship things that are more abstract, like money and what we think it will buy us, and power and what we think it will accomplish for us, and recognition and how it makes us feel. Those things are still idols, though, right? And so God says you have to turn away from those idols and turn to me to serve me. So we do that, and then we expect that everything's going to just be easy from then on out. But the reality is that it is a process. It is a thing that unfolds throughout the course of our lives. We don't just say, I prayed a prayer yesterday, now I'm steadfast of mine, and I have perfect peace, and I will always have perfect peace, and it's just going to be amazing until the day that I die. Our lives are full of turmoil and difficulty, sometimes because we forget that we've turned from idols to serve God, and we go back to them, and they fail us again and again. Sometimes because we forget that we've turned to God, and we forget to trust in Him, And so a verse like this is not a guarantee that you will always feel peaceful and that your life will always be easy. It is a reminder that God can take sinners and make them his own and give them security and peace when they didn't deserve any of that because they were going their own way and running away from him. And that's where the Israelites were. Isaiah is talking to a people who, by and large, know what it means to follow God and consistently and repeatedly go their own way. Here's King Uzziah, tries to be a priest. When God says, you're not a priest, you're a king, get out of the temple, strikes him with leprosy. And then the nation starts to fall apart. All these military victories and the expansion of the land just starts to get eaten away by enemies. Why? Because the people are persisting in idolatry. And it gets really bad under Uzziah's grandson, 
um, Ahaz, and he goes just all out, builds a pagan altar, goes and says, well, here's this God from this nation, let's bring him in. Here's this God from this nation, let's bring him in. Here's these pagan goddesses, let's do that too. And the people participated in it, in it as well. And Isaiah is talking to these sort of people and saying, you're going to keep doing this same stupid idolatry over and over and over again, and God is going to punish you for it, but there is coming a day when he's going to restore you after he's purged your desire to follow after these idols as a nation, and you're going to have security and peace, and you can rejoice in that. And then comes a statement like verse 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for in God we have an everlasting rock. This reminds me of a passage like Psalm 62, where it talks about the Lord being our rock. Or Matthew 21, where in a negative sense it says, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the foundation of faith for those who believe in him, but also like rocks at the bottom of a cliff for people who reject him, a rock of destruction for the wicked, a rock of security for his people. And we see that imagery often in the Psalms and the prophets and even, like I said, the New Testament. So those who trust in God find peace, so keep trusting in God. And then there's this reminder in verses 5 and 6 that God is going to again bring low the enemies of his people. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. Again, that irony. Here's the unassailable wall. God pushed it over. Here's the unassailable city. God defeated it. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it. But who's doing the trampling? Notice verse 6, very interesting. The feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. So the people that, when you look at them, you say, there's no way they're going to ever win at anything in life. God takes those people, to the extent that they're trusting in Him and following after Him, protects them, and then gives them victory over these great and powerful enemies who, from their perspective, are unassailable and untouchable. God casts them down, tramples them to the dust. God exalts the helpless and the needy who trust in Him and gives them victory over their enemies. The problem over and over again for the people of Israel is that they wanted to be the ones who in pride said, we're the ones who don't need God. Look at our army. Look at our riches. Look at our alliances with the nations around us. We're good, God. We don't need you anymore. And God said, I don't want you to be the ones who are proud and think that you have unassailable fortifications and the ones who think that you don't need me. I want you to be the ones who recognize that you are helpless and needy, the smallest of the nations, whom I chose for myself, not because of anything that you could offer me, but because of everything that I could do for you and glorify my name in you. And to the extent that the Israelites, in moments of difficulty, cried out to God, God powerfully delivered them. And to the extent that they exalted themselves and said, I don't need you anymore, God, God knocked them down. And there's powerful lessons in that for us as well. Not only should we see that we should confess God and trust, but we should also trust God to direct our way. We see this in verses 7 through 10. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. 
This is kind of a wisdom section of this song because there's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. God makes a smooth and level way for his people who trust in him. Verse 7, the way of the righteous is smooth. And then there's a prayer that he would continue to do that, make the path of the righteous level. And how does this happen? It happens as they follow God's ways and God's judgments. So there's truth about God and there's what God wants them to do to the extent that they know that truth and live in it. God blesses them. Um, you're probably familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He'll direct your paths. Or the famous psalm that Jonathan Edwards preached on, that God makes the way of the wicked slippery so their foot will slide in due time. This is the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Not that life will be easy, not that we'll go according to our plans, but that God is with us, guiding us, helping us, going before us. But if we are the wicked, we have no reason to expect that. What does it look like to be righteous? To eagerly seek after him. Your name, your memory is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. My spirit seeks you diligently. How badly do you want God? Are you more excited about God than about a new movie that's coming out? Are you more excited about God than getting a raise at work? Are you more excited about God than having a new kid or getting married or whatever it might be? Are you more excited about God than all those things? Because if you're not, you don't get what this verse is talking about. And we tend to be very not excited about God and excited about a lot of other things, which even if they're good things, are not to be the focus of our life. This is the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. God gives you good gifts. Work and the fruit of your labors, food and drink, time with family, pleasure. All these things are good gifts from God. But when you worship the gifts instead of the God who gives them, then you fail to be excited about God and rejoice in God and seek God. For those of you who are married and feel like you have a good marriage, think back to when you were first dating the person that you married. You want to know everything about that person. You want to spend all your time together. You want to tell other people about that. And hopefully that continues, right? That's the sort of excitement that we're supposed to have about God. And our excitement about God tends to be more like, I went to church this week. I looked at my Bible three times. I think I prayed yesterday. God deserves a whole lot more than that. And if you feel like I'm berating you, these are things that I've been convicted by too. Because there is, there, is, there is nothing that will make you realize how lazy you've been in your relationship with God than to have your life fall apart and realize that everything that you thought was secure is not. But I'm saying that because there are moments of my life that I've wasted and there are moments of life that you have wasted, and we need to stop wasting those moments and do what God calls us to do 
to seek after Him with our whole hearts, not with the remnants of what we have left over after we've done all the things that the world around us says are important. So after you've done your job, and I'm not saying don't do your job, but after you've done your job, and you've had some fun, and you've done whatever you feel like, at the end of the day, take those five minutes and give them to God. Again, going back to the illustration, if that's how you treat your husband or wife, you're going to have problems in your marriage pretty quickly. Because they don't want the leftovers of your day, and God doesn't either. Verses 7 through 10 say that there should be this degree of eagerness in seeking after God. And if we think that we want our way to go well, there has to be a relationship with God that's set in contrast to, well, that has the goal of ultimately not sort of a self-serving kind of a thing, but this idea that when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. We desire along with God that more people would learn righteousness and see through God's mighty power that he's a God worth worshiping, while at the same time recognizing, verse 10, that even though there's all these opportunities given to the wicked, apart from God's work in them, and often the response that they have is they don't learn righteousness, they deal unjustly, they don't see God's majesty. So if people around us who don't know God are going to act that way, Let them act that way because of the stubbornness of their hearts and the blindness of their eyes to the truth of God, and not because they see in us a reason to doubt God because they say, they're not any different than I am. And when I say different, I don't mean external appearance things. I mean, do you love God? Are you filled with zeal that you want to tell people about God? Because if they don't see that, that's one of many excuses that they have to say, well, Why should I bother? Life's going okay. If it doesn't even matter enough to you that you're not even excited about it, why do I need to worry about it? And there's more than that going on here. There's all the theological reasons for why people reject God. But sometimes Christians have done more to undermine the cause of people turning to God than even people who live very wicked lives. So you have people who say that they're Christians and then they commit adultery, and that undermines the name of God. That's what David prayed about in Psalm 32 and 51. You have people who say they're Christians, but you never once see them do anything that is the sort of thing that you'd think a Christian might be interested in, learning more about God, following after God, telling other people about God. We need to consider these things. Thirdly, confess God as the source of life and help, not your failing efforts. We see this in verses 11 through 21. I'm not going to read them for sake of time, but let me just summarize them. God lifts up his hand against his enemies, but establishes peace for his people. Verse 11 says, your hand is lifted up. Verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us since you've also performed all our works. God is going to lift up his hand in judgment against his enemies, but he's going to establish peace for his people. And even in the moments when it seems like God is distant, he was still the ruler of his people. See this in verse 13. I already read that. And then when it comes to enemies, there's this interesting contrast. They have no hope for life. Verse 14, the dead will not live, the departed spirits will not rise. They are dead and there is no hope for a resurrection. But in contrast, verses 19 through 21, is that there is going to be hope for resurrection and a refuge from from the storm. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. Well, who's that addressed to? It's addressed to God's people who seek him after he chastens and disciplines them. 
they need to first acknowledge the emptiness of their own efforts. And so he uses this illustration of, of pregnancy. He basically says, there's this pregnant woman, she's expecting a child, but then nothing. When we in our own efforts attempt to achieve security and all the things that this passage is talking about on our own, we're striving after wind. Verse 18, we gave birth as to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. We could not give life on our own. We cannot accomplish lasting security on our own. All of our efforts, even though they seem like they're going to produce something, produce nothing. But when we acknowledge that and we turn to God, then there's this hope, verse 19, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. And there is this understanding that there's going to be refuge from the storm. Again, verse 20 and 21. Come, my people, enter into your rooms. Hide for a little while. The Lord will come out from his place to punish the earth. The earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. But despite all those things, God is once again a refuge for those who trust in him. And so we're supposed to praise God for salvation from enemies, especially death. And this happens when you confess God and trust as he guides your way and gives you life. But really, before you're going to confess God and trust, you need to make peace with God, who makes his people fruitful through deliverance, repentance from idolatry. Just a few short verses here in chapter 27. I take this from verse 5, this idea of making peace. He says, Or let him rely on my protection, let him make peace with me, let him make peace with me. So in verse, verse 1, 7 through 8, and 10 through 11, we see this reality. God is going to strike his enemies. 27.1, In that day the Lord will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent with his fierce and great and mighty sword, Leviathan even the twisted serpent, and he'll kill the dragon who lives in the sea. This, I think, is a reference to Satan because we see the same imagery of the serpent in Genesis and in um, Revelation. It's referenced when uh, Luke 10, 18, uh, Jesus says, I, fall, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We see it in Isaiah 14, verse 12. How have you fallen from heaven, star of the morning, son of the dawn? You've been cut down to the earth. So God is going to go and defeat Satan. That's one of these enemies that God is going to strike. God is going to strike his own people if they behave as his enemies. Verses 7 and 8, like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Were like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. The Israelites turned to idolatry. God sent them into exile among the nations. So God will cast down Satan. God will discipline his people when they reject him. And God will cast off his dead branches, those who refuse to acknowledge him. Verses 10 and 11 here. The fortified city is isolated. Again, same kind of idea that we've seen throughout these chapters. Verse 11, when its limbs are dry, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them, for they are not a people of discernment. Therefore, their maker will not have compassion on them, and their creator will not be gracious to them. Well, this parallels 26.10. Uh, the wicked is shown favor, does not learn in righteousness, deals unjustly, does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. So for the wicked who reject God they'll be cast off. God's going to strike Satan in final judgment. God's going to temporarily discipline his people to the extent that they reject him. And God is going to punish the wicked along with Satan whom they are following. So God will strike his enemies. So then the point is make peace with God by repenting of idolatry. Verses two through six. What do we see here? 
In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. God describes his people as a vineyard. He's watching over it. You ever had a garden or a fruit tree or something like that that you care about? What do you do? You try to keep bugs off of it. You try to make sure it gets water. You give it fertilizer, whatever it needs. It's something you're taking care of. That's the image of God watching over his people. God calls then even his enemies to make peace with him. This uh, imagery in verse 4 is difficult. Should someone give me briars and thorns, I would step on them, burn them completely. I think it's the idea if someone were to try to damage his vineyard by planting briars and thorns in them, he would rip them out and destroy them. And yet, even if that enemy, verse 5, were to turn to him, let him rely on my protection, make peace with me, make peace with me, there's this implication that God would take even that enemy and be at peace with him, which, interestingly enough, is what happens and talked about a lot in the New Testament. We were God's enemies. He's made peace with us through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, and he's made us his own. God then blesses his people with fruitfulness. Verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. A lot of things about the idea of fruitfulness that maybe we can explore when we discuss it more this afternoon. But the basic idea is this. God's going to restore his people, replant them. They're going to bear fruit. We talked about a lot of those images last week as well. But when does this happen? It only happens when they've rejected their idols. Verse 9, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. This will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when Asherim and incense altars will not stand. The continuing problem of the people of Israel and Judah was they kept worshiping idols. And God says, how will you know that you are forgiven and secure and will have all these blessings and will be fruitful? It's not going to happen until you reject your idols and don't just say we're going to put it in the closet and pull it out later, but until you smash it and break it and reject it in such a way that you cannot come back to it. We don't like to do that. We want to say, I'll put this sin away, but I might want it later. I'm going to put it in storage. I'm not going to break it. And God said, Israelites, when you have fully and finally rejected the idols in which you have trusted, then you will be fruitful. Then you'll have my favor. Then you'll have this restoration. That's what God accomplishes through the exile for the people of Israel and Judah. And in this future hope, God is going to gather his people from wherever they've been scattered. Verse 12, In that day the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and he will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This again, I think, goes back to what we saw in chapters 19 and 20. This hope of Assyria and Egypt and Israel all worshiping God together, Isaiah 19.25. This idea that I think is anticipated in some of the things that Jesus says in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the trumpet being blown and God gathering his people. All of this imagery we see throughout scripture of God gathering his people. What do we learn from this passage? God is worthy of praise for our salvation. We see that in chapter 25. We won't praise until we confess God as we trust in Him, chapter 26. We won't trust in God until we turn from our idols, chapter 27. So here's the question. Are you praising God? If you're not, you need to see if you actually are confessing God and really trusting in Him. 
And if you're not confessing God, you need to ask yourself, what idols do I love instead of God? Things that I've never turned from and I never really knew God, or things that I turn from but I keep going back to? And so if you praise God as you confess and because you trust in Him alone, then you will see God's fruit in your life because He is a good and gracious King. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we have looked at these verses together, there's a lot of things that we have covered, but I pray that the important truths would stick in our minds. You are a compassionate God who desires your people to follow you. You're also a jealous God who's not going to take the leftovers of our lives or let us flirt with idolatry and act like it's okay. If you were willing to uproot the entirety of your people from the land and send them into captivity among the nations to purge idolatry from them, I don't know why we get the idea that you're okay with it in our lives now. And so, Lord, just help us to see the foolishness of thinking that way. Help us to see the emptiness of half-heartedly following you. Because if the images that we were talking about, about the church in the Sunday school hour are true, this picture of marriage is supposed to point to the reality of God with his church, then I think there's a lot of lessons for us to learn about why things go wrong in marriage and why they go wrong in our relationship with you when we fail to love you as we should, when we participate half-heartedly in our relationship with you, when we try to do as little as possible and expect that you will be pleased. Help us to see this vision of the future that you hold out, that you are praised, that we confess you, that we have set aside our idols and we don't want to go back to them. And Lord, help that to become a reality in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.